Once more, we welcome you to our assembly. We echo the feelings of appreciation that have already been stated. We're thankful for everyone who is here. Now, we're not going to study anything new tonight, as, as has been the case in every uh, part of our services this week. But we want to study further and uh, maybe remind you of some things and maybe even uh, teach you some things maybe that you have not thought about when we talk about the history of the communion. The idea of the communion is very interesting. Notice now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, Paul is not necessarily teaching on the communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's teaching a lesson about eating meat at the idol's temple or eating the meat that has been offered to idols. But he uses the communion, the establishment and the practice of the communion in the church at Corinth to illustrate and teach the people a lesson uh, about the theme or the subject that he wants them uh, to understand. And so we can take these verses and we can infer some things that Paul uh, suggests. Notice now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So we have this word communion. Now the word communion has at its root the word common. And so the idea that's being suggested here is that there's something that is shared in common. In fact, the lexicographer defines the word communion as a having in common, a partnership, fellowship. It denotes the share which one has in anything, a participation, fellowship, recognized, and enjoyed. Now notice what Vine continues to say in this same context. He says this word communion in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 of the sharing in the realization of the effects of the blood, that is the death, of Christ and the body of Christ as set forth by the emblems in the Lord's Supper. Now what we must realize is that communion is not only uh, vertical, that is when I commune, I'm communing with God. When you're communing, you're communing with God. But communion is horizontal. Now think about this. People talk about individual communion. That's a paradox. It's, it's not possible to have individual communion. And when we share in the body and blood of the Lord, we're sharing it with each other. We're having communion. Now in order for a communion to occur, the loaf must be blessed and from the time that the loaf is blessed, every person in the assembly has to eat from that one loaf. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. The unit of observance for the communion is a local congregation. In fact, this is interesting because this is what's illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A lot of people do not understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. Paul says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, that is when you come together in the assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Notice further what he says in the 20th verse. Therefore, he's talking about the same thing. He's, he's, he's looking uh, to the same subject. He says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So the unit of observance is a congregation. That's why you don't choose to travel around the world and commune in your home. 
Because when you commune, it has to occur in a local church. In order for the communion to be observed, it has to be together in a local congregation. That's the dictates of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, I already mentioned this, but I'm going to emphasize it again. When the bread is prayed for, that's the beginning of the communion of the body of Christ. And when the last person eats from the bread, it's finished. Now suppose mom, suppose my wife, suppose that it was 25 years ago, or actually maybe need to be 27 years ago, and our little boy had to go to the bathroom, and she took him out while we were observing the bread. Now what do you do? She didn't eat the bread. Now I'll tell you what they do in some places. When the service is over, they serve her the bread. Now is that right? You see, it's wrong. It's bigger than a local church. And when she ate the bread after the service, it's no longer the body of Christ. It's just bread. I remember when I was a boy, somebody missed the service like that, missed the communion, the, the bread like that, and uh, he didn't drink the cup. <laughs> See, he did the wrong thing when he didn't drink the cup. Now, he might have been excused for missing the bread if it was a child that was sick or something that he had to take care of. But when he was sitting in this assembly and the cup come by, he didn't drink from the cup. He sinned when he did that. Now, after the service is over, the preacher said, well, then what you need to do is you need to eat the bread and then you need to drink the cup. <laughs> that don't work. Because the unit of observance is a congregation. And when the bread is finished, when the assembly has partaken of the bread, that is a communion of the body of Christ. And when that is finished, it's over. It's no longer a special a portion. It's no longer a representation of the body of Jesus. But the unit of observance is the local church. Now then, let's continue on. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, no less than five times the idea or the concept of coming together is suggested. Now when Jesus instituted the supper... We know that it was during the Passover. So in order to really understand what happened or what occurred in the, in, the, in, in the supper, we need to talk a little bit about the Passover. Now Jesus had probably observed the Passover with the disciples three different times when he finally came to, the, to this observance where he's going to introduce his body. He's going to introduce his blood. Now Luke, of course, mentions the cup before he mentions the bread. Why does he do that? Well, Luke often gets things out of order, but I think David Lipskin was right. When he wrote in the Gospel Advocate back in the 19th century, he said what was happening was, is here Jesus was doing something in the supper that had never been done before. You see, there was no drink element in the Passover. Now you may be sitting there and saying, hold it, wait a minute, preacher. There was a drink element in the Passover. No, sir, <laughs> not in the Bible there wasn't. Now the Jews traditionally had four cups. And some people take the position that in Luke 22, when Jesus mentions the cup the first time, that was the fourth cup of the Passover. But I don't believe that for one minute. In fact, that would be an innovation. Jesus would have changed the law that God had given under that old system. In the Passover, there was no drink element. But now, he's going to introduce his supper. 
And so he explains to them what the cup was for, and then he observes the supper. He blesses the loaf. He breaks to protect, as we're going to see in a moment. He prays for the cup and its contents, and he drinks from the cup, and he commands the disciples to all drink from it. Now, there's not two cups in Luke 22, as some would tell you, but, abs- but, but of course, uh, there was a reason why uh, Luke mentions the cup twice. So now we need to think about the Passover. Now, it's interesting. Jesus was represented by the Passover lamb. In fact, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb had to be male. He had to be uh, less than a year old. and He had to be spotless and without blemish. And of course, all of those things pointed to Jesus that was to die on the cross. Notice now, the Passover pointed to the cross. It did not necessarily point to the communion. Sometimes people say that. It doesn't necessarily point to the communion. It pointed to the cross. The Bible says that Jesus is the Passover. It says Jesus is the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And what that means is He's our Passover Lamb. Now, what did Jesus do when He instituted the supper? Now, there were many loaves on the table. There were many breads on the table because during the Passover supper, they were to observe the eating of unleavened bread. Now, we know that it was unleavened because during the Passover, they had to go 14 days without any leavening in the house, without any yeast. Now, this is interesting because the word leaven always referred to a solid and the word ferment always referred to a liquid. But it was the same Hebrew word or the same Greek word. In other words, if it's talking about grape juice and it uses the term leaven or unleavened, then it has reference to bread. It wouldn't be talking about the grape juice. But if it says fermented or unfermented, it'd be talking about the juice because that's a liquid. Now, what's the point? The point is this. There could be no yeast in the house of any kind. In fact, they had to do what we might call spring cleaning. They had to open the cupboards, take everything out, and make sure there was not one speck of leaven. There was a reason for that. It pointed to the fact that in the church you'd be sinless. You'd be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and you wouldn't be guilty of sin. You see, yeast represented sin. So they were to get it out of their house, literally representing the spiritual uh, sin or the sin that was going to be spiritually washed away from our lives and our souls were going to be pure. Now, the bread was unleavened. We don't know for sure uh, what the recipe is. Now, some people say it has to be wheat bread, but there is no recipe for wheat bread concerning the Passover. Most scholars think that the bread Jesus used was made from barley flour. Now, there is, a, there is a recipe in the Old Testament when it's talking about a certain sacrifice with the priests where they used whole wheat flour, but not when it comes to the bread of the Passover. Now, there is a recipe, but it's not specifically the Passover, but it's a recipe for making unleavened bread in the book of Exodus. And it just says, refined flour mingled with oil. So, in the Philippines, you might uh, eat a bread or a loaf that's made out of rice flour. In Africa, when you get in the bush, they don't have access to wheat flour, and so you may eat a loaf that's made out of corn flour. You see, the Lord didn't specify. 
It just has to be unleavened. Now, whether you put a little salt in it or you don't, that don't change the fact of whether or not it's leavened. Now, if you don't want to put salt in the bread, don't do it. My wife doesn't do that. She didn't put any salt in the leaven. Most of the time, she doesn't even use any oil. But the Bible says that it was, that it was refined flour mingled with oil. Now, the kind of loaf that they used, according to Thayer, was either a square or round in shape, and it was about the thickness of one's thumb. Now, listen, it's not a cracker. Listen to me, sisters. If you make the loaf, don't make a cracker. And don't put dough on the table. Think about it a little bit. And make it like the Lord wanted it to make, like he wanted us to make it. Now look at what he says here. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. So he takes a loaf of unleavened bread and he calls it his body. Take, eat, this is my body. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The point is, he's commanding them to do whatever he did. Whatever it is that he did, he commands Peter, if he was sitting to his right, he commands him this do, or do just as I have done. This bread is my body. This do, do this. Keep on doing this. That's why you read in Acts the second chapter, verse 42, that they broke bread on the first day of the church. In Acts 20, verse 7, they're still breaking bread. In fact, this was a common practice every time the church came together on the first day of the week to break bread. And of course, it became a figure representing the Lord's Supper. When they said break bread, they meant they observed the Lord's Supper and even represented all of the parts of service that they were to observe. Now, what did Jesus do? Think about this. He commanded them to do as he did. So what did he do? Some think that he broke it in two. Now, if I break that bread in two and I hand it to Terry, can Terry do that again? No, he can't do it. It's impossible. Some believe that he took the loaf, and of course we're pretending now. <laughs> you know, don't go away and say Dwayne Perimeter said that piece of, bread, piece of paper was a bread, because it's not. Some believe that uh, he took the loaf and he broke it into as, many into as many pieces as there were present. Now, if he did that and passed it to Terry, could Terry do that? No, he couldn't do that. This is another position. In fact, this is the position we hold. Some believe that Jesus took the loaf. He took one loaf. He called one loaf his body. He blessed one loaf. He broke from one loaf. He ate from one loaf. And he passed one loaf to the disciples. And they all broke each to partake. Now... Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 16. Look at this. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Notice now, the bread which we break. Who are the we that break? Well, Paul's at Ephesus. And the unit of observance is a congregation. So this we would include Paul at Ephesus and the church at Ephesus. It would include the church at Corinth where he was writing. 
So it was a local church assembled that broke the bread. He says, we break. Now, who was the one that broke? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. Look at this. For we, the same we, that breaks in verse 16. For we all partake of that one bread. You see, he took one bread, one loaf, and he broke it. Why did he break it? To partake. And he passed it to the disciples, and he commanded them to do as he had done, to do just as he had done. Now, this is interesting. We've been, we're talking about the Passover. This was during the Passover that this was observed. And so there's some things that we learned about the communion because it was the Passover. One of the things that we mentioned is we know that the juice and the bread were unleavened and unfermented because no leavening was allowed in the house. The grape juice had to be grape juice. Now we know that the ancients had at least six methods that they used to preserve fresh juice. The time that Jesus observed the supper was not the time of bearing grapes. And so they would uh, preserve juice. One of the ways they preserved it was to mash the juice into uh, some kind of container and then boil it down to where it was a thick syrup. In fact, uh, it's known today that if you have a liquid that's more than 60% sugar, it's almost impossible to ferment. In fact, it'll if it does spoil at all, it'll spoil and become vinegar, not, not liquor, not wine. Well, now look at this. It's during the Passover. Every house had one lamb representing Christ on the cross. During the communion, every house has one bread representing Jesus on the cross. The lamb in the Passover looked forward to the cross. The bread on the table looks back to the cross. There was one lamb, and so every house today has one loaf. One bread and one body, for we, are all, for we all partake of that one bread. Well, again, in Matthew 26, verse 27, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Now, Jesus, did Jesus use one cup? It's clear that he did in Matthew 26, verse 27. Did Jesus command us to drink from one cup? Yes. He said, drink from it, all of you. That's a command. Listen to me. That's a command. And we're commanded to drink from the cup. Matthew 26, 27 is not an example. It's a command. The example is in Mark 14. When the disciples, the Bible says, they all drank from it. So what did Jesus do? Jesus took one cup, Matthew 26, 27. Jesus prayed for one cup, Matthew 26, 27. Jesus drank from one cup, Matthew 26, 29. Jesus commanded the disciples to drink from one cup, Matthew 26, 27. What did the disciples do? I already mentioned that. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Jesus took one cup. Now listen to me. The cup of the Lord is not an empty cup. Sometimes in our earnest desire to uh, teach the truth, we almost leave the wrong impression. Because the cup is nothing in and of itself. 
The cup and its contents make up the cup of the Lord. In fact, Paul says, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Now, in the Old Testament, there's a passage in the book of Isaiah that tells us that when you take the cluster and you squash the cluster, that uh, you destroy the blessing, or the blessing will come out. Now, Paul says, the cup of blessing. You see, the Jews understood that. He was talking about a cup of grape juice. It's the cup of the Lord that we bless. Now, it's true that he said, this fruit of the vine is my blood. It's true, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. he says this cup is the new covenant. There's no doubt about that. But the covenant and the blood are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the blood alone exclusively any more than you can have the covenant without the blood. Without the blood of Jesus, we could never be forgiven. So the cup of the Lord is both the container and its context. Jesus took a cup. It was not an empty cup, but a cup containing grape juice. And all of the disciples drank from that cup. Now there is no departure from this pattern. In all of the New Testament, Christ used one cup. Matthew used one cup. Mark used one cup. Luke did. Paul did. The church at Jerusalem did. The church at Corinth did. There was no departure from this pattern. Now this is kind of an interesting tidbit. Some of you might not have known this. In 1908, when the gospel was first carried to Zambia, they used one cup to distribute the fruit of the wine. It wasn't our brotherhood, per se, although it was because the division on communion hadn't come yet. In 1908, when the Church of Christ first went to Zambia, one loaf and one cup to distribute the fruit of the vine was introduced to be used in the communion. All churches of Christ, before, the, before 1914, the 1920s, just about all churches of Christ used one cup. A few used more than one or two uh, when the crowd was large. Now what changed all this? Well, here's an interesting man. He was a microbiologist. And he lived from 1822 to 1895. He's the first fella that was able to devise a microscope that he could look down into that microscope and see those little squiggity uh, bugs crawling through the water. He found germs. <laughs> and when he found those germs, he literally created a germ hysteria in America. Now, none of us remember that because that was a long time ago. That was in the 19th century. He created a germ hysteria. But, you know, we still have a problem with that attitude. People, that's still, I'm convinced that's still one of the main reasons that people don't want to use one container and eat from one bread. It's because of the germs that they might get. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If I die drinking from one cup, so be it. Do you think Paul could have denied Jesus Christ so they wouldn't chop his head off? Absolutely not. He allowed him to chop his head off. He would never deny his Lord. And if, it's, if I'm going to die from drinking from one cup, then so be it. In the first place, God's the one that made the germs. We act like that because we discovered something, God didn't know it already. And as far as I know, there's nobody that's ever died from drinking from one cup. My great-grandpa drank for 80 years out of one cup. 
And I guess he, maybe he did die from some disease he got from drinking one cup because he died at the young age of 96. And you know what? It was three weeks after his wife died. Until his wife died, he wasn't even sick. Well, the scientist introduced germs. We'll call this fellow the inventor, J.G. Thomas. Now, he was a Presbyterian. And uh, he, was a, he was a preacher as well as a, as a doctor. And uh, it's stated by his children, individual communion cups were first invented and patented by John G. Thomas, who is both a preacher and a doctor. He states the purpose of his invention, the object of this invention is to provide an individual or separate cup for the use of each person at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Brother Miller, in 1950, received this letter from his family who stated this very same truth that their grandfather, John G. Thomas, who was both a physician and a minister, invented the first individual communion outfit. The first patents were issued to him in 1894. The Market Street Presbyterian Church of Lima, Ohio, is believed to be the first church to use individual communion cups in a communion service. Now, this occurred in about 1894. Until this time... Even in all the religious world, they used one container to distribute the fruit of the vine. A few exceptions were they would use two cups to speed or hasten the communion up, sending it down one side and down the other. But even the denominations used one cup until this change occurred. Now we'll call this fellow the innovator. He was a great preacher. He did a lot of good for the church, but he also led the church into digression. His name is G.C. Brewer. And uh, he is the, one of the ancestors of the movement that we call the digressive movement. He said, I think I was the first preacher to advocate the use of individual communion cup. And the first church in the state of Tennessee that adopted it was the church for which I was preaching, the Central Church of Christ at Chattanooga, Tennessee, then meeting in the Masonic Temple. Now, it's hard to know for sure who started it. Now, he takes credit for it. But in his book, 40 Years in the Firing Line, the introduction. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he did start it. But he's one of the first. Now, it's interesting. Because David Lipskin, who lived at that time, who was editor and publisher of the uh, Gospel Advocate, adamantly opposed individual cups. He fought G.C. Brewer tooth and toenail. But, of course, later he changed his mind. He fought G.C. Brewer and, and even took him to task publicly in the religious journal. J.W. McGarvey stood for the truth, stood for one bread and one cup on the table. Now, this is an interesting fellow, J.D. Tent. You know, I live in Cleburne, Texas, and his grave is, is at Cleburne, Texas. In fact, he, used, he grew up as a boy in the church where I'm at. And uh, a lot of history, that, little, that old building. In fact, Ronnie Wade. Uh, as a boy, was taken to church at that particular place. Uh, uh, Dr. Trott, a man that we're going to mention in just a moment, held meetings there and even debated uh, the communion issue in that building. Well, the point is, this man believed you had to use one bread. In his old sermon book called The Gospel X-Ray, I used to have it in my library until I shipped it to America or to, from America to Zambia, and it got lost in the process, and I haven't seen it since, about eight years ago. But... Uh, in his sermon book, The Gospel Advocate, he preached a sermon on the tabernacle. 
And he showed how that because there were 12 families, there were 12 loaves on the table. But today we only have one family, so we only use one loaf on the table. But what's interesting about it, what's intriguing about his position, even though he believed you had to use one loaf, he thought it was all right to use individual cups. Sort of a contradiction. Of course, all of his family now have... Uh, have uh, taken in with the digressive movement. H.C. Harper in Florida stood for the truth and, and fought the innovation. Uh, Dr. Trott of Monday, Texas also fought the innovation. Homer King and Homer Gay from Lee Seventh, Missouri stood tall and helped to mold our brotherhood and helped to develop our brotherhood in the way that it has been developed. All of these men stood for the truth, at least in the beginning. But some of them, of course, changed. Division came. In spite of all the efforts, in spite of everything that was done, division came. The brotherhood was split again, all because of a germ hysteria. Men divided the church because of fear of doing God's will, God's way. This is one of the modern ways that they uh, buy their bread. It comes in wafers. Uh, this is another uh, way. This is uh, something that started doing not too long before I went to Zambia. You notice that little cup there. You, you, the, the, there, there are little, little uh, places at, the ta at your seat where you have your cup uh, set before the service starts. And when it's time to wait on the table, the man stands up at the table and he says, it's time to eat the Lord's body. He prays and he says, everybody take your little uh, plastic container. And, and after he prays, he says, peel off the top and you can eat your body. You can eat the body of the Lord. <laughs> you think it's the body of the Lord. And then after they eat the body of the Lord, he prays again for the juice. And he says, peel the second layer off and you can drink your cup, drink your juice. <laughs> That's where people have come from, gone to. That's what happens when you open the door of digression. Now, in the Passover, every house had a lamb representing Christ on the cross. Now, in the communion, of course, every house has a bread representing Jesus on the cross. Now, look at this passage in Exodus 12, where the, where the Passover was instituted. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. Now, again, remember the Passover lamb represented Jesus. Verse 22, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the house or out of the door of his house until morning. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the door, two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now clearly, the Bible says that every house had a lamb. But guess what? Every house had a container. And in that container was the blood of that one lamb. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? Here, we're talking about an event that occurred 1,400 years before Jesus ever came. Do you think that Moses and the children of Israel had any idea what they were doing? They had one container with the blood of that one lamb that they slayed in each house. Isn't that incredible? Well, you think it's an accident. In the Passover, one house 
One lamb, one basin. In the communion, one house, one bread, one cup. Scholars who are supposed to know tell us that the word in the Hebrew that's translated basin is the co-equivalent to the word that's translated cup in the Greek. Isn't that interesting? You think it's an accident. But we have brethren who have ruined that picture. You see, we have the shadow of Jesus on the cross. We have what God organized under the Old Testament that points to the cross. And today we have the legislation of Jesus that points back to the cross. Isn't it incredible how closely these compare? How closely those work. Well, who caused the division tonight? Is it the person who opposed the innovation? Alexander Campbell said it was the man who made the golden calf that wrought confusion in Israel. You know, they'll, say, they'll tell us why you people believe you can only observe it one way. You believe that only one cup can be used, and when we use more than one cup, uh, you believe that we're wrong, we sin. You've caused a division. We believe you can worship either way. But the truth of the matter is, the person who brings in the new innovation is the one that causes the division, is the one who sins. The one who is right is the person who stays with the tried and true. That's why Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. As I've stated previously, this idea of the faith has to do with the gospel. When you see the article before faith in the Bible, it always can be interchanged with the term gospel. He says that we're to earnestly contend for the gospel that has once been delivered to all the saints. And it's in the gospel that Jesus instituted his communion. And he says to eat from one bread and to drink from one cup. Now here he tells us that we're to mark. Now the word mark in that passage means that we observe them. Now how long do we observe someone who teaches an offense? How long do we observe someone that causes a division? Well, in Titus chapter 3, Paul says a man that is a heretic after the first and the second admonition reject him. In other words, if a man does not believe the true doctrine and he's teaching anybody privately or talking about it to anybody individually or even from the pulpit, he can be, he can be admonished twice and then he's to be rejected, the Bible says. So the idea of observing or marking, listen to what he says. Now I urge you, brethren, note in the New King James Version is the replacement for mark. Note those who cause division and offenses. You do that once and twice, and then you reject them, see. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. <clears throat> Haven't we been deceived through the years so many times? Just because a person worships scripturally does not mean that we're in fellowship with them. He clearly says here that a man who teaches something contrary to the doctrine of Christ, we're to mark him, we're to observe him, and then we're to avoid him if he will not repent.
Clearly, that passage teaches us. Here we have the observance of the Passover pointing to the cross. We have the observance of the communion pointing back to the cross. Very similar analogy. This loaf is my body, Matthew 26, 26. This fruit of the vine is my blood, Mark 14, verse 24. This cup is the new covenant, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Now, in conclusion, I want you to listen now. Don't get your hymn book. You'll notice the man's painting the doorposts and the header. Same thing in this picture. You see, they did that. We know why they did that, so they could escape death. Because the destroyer was coming through the land. And every house where there was a child or a firstborn animal found, there was going to be a death. Both in Israel and in Egypt. But God told Moses, he extended his grace to the people of God, and he says, you slay the lamb. You take the blood of that lamb in the basin. And you brush the blood on the upper doorposts and the side posts. And when the destroyer passes through the land and he sees the house marked with blood, he'll pass over. Now I'm asking you tonight, are you in the house that is marked with blood? Are you in the house that can save you from the destroyer? I'm telling you tonight, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Every one of us has to stop and think about where we are and who we are and what we have been. And we need to make sure we're in the house that is marked with blood. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, that is Jesus Christ, purchased with his own blood. Paul says that we're baptized into Christ. And when we're baptized into Christ, that puts us in contact with his death. In Colossians 2 verse 12, the Bible says that we're buried with him in his death. And it's in his death he shed his blood. And when you obey that gospel, when you obey from the heart that form of doctrine, you're made free from sin. When you're made free from sin, you're added to the church. You're baptized into Christ. You're added to the house that is marked in blood. And tonight, if that's not the case in your life, we urge you, we beseech you to stop and consider it because... We don't have assurance of tomorrow. We only have assurance of right now. And James asks the question, he proposes the question, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Man, where have the years come and gone? I remember when I was 15 years old, I came down here and gave a little talk at a Labor Day meeting that Brunnage Lane was holding. Where, where have all these years gone? 40 years ago. I don't know how much time I got left. <laughs> but the one with whom we have to do knows. 
and I'm going to do everything I can within my power to stay within the goodness of his love. And tonight, if you're not on the Lord's side, if you're not on the, in the house that's marked with blood, we beseech you, we urge you to do whatever you have to do to get in that house. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.